watchers in the fourth dimension. He should never have got involved in local politics. And I'm not making the same mistake. I say, we attack again. Once security troops are summoned, they cannot be recalled. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And since she is only a female, her activities are of little importance. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Well, this episode, we're heading to the familiar setting of Peladon, as Brian Hales thankfully brings us his swung song for Doctor Who in The Monster of Peladon. But before we tackle that hot mess, Julie's going to take a look at the mail. Over to you, Julie. Our first category is general feedback. And I'm just going to say this is probably one of the most heartfelt things I've heard in a while. From Jozer. Howdy, Watchers Quartet. Fell behind in keeping abreast of the podcast. I know, I know. Bad Jozer. No jelly babies. (laughs) Have been using the last few Sundays to play catch up, picking up where I left off. The team moving into Pertwee's run. Glad to hear Julie got another character crush in the form of Sergeant Benton. And then the Time Monsters, Baby Benton and Naked Benton, was giggling like a school kid as the team also came to terms with Alpha Centauri and the Curse of Peladon. Relevant. <laughs> Relevant. <laughs> Y'all get eight squealing hexapodal hermaphrodites out of ten for that one for me. <laughs> About to wrap up season nine with the team's retrospective, episode 79, the James Bond approach, when I hit send on this email. From the cliched longtime listener, first time writer, glad to see slash hear y'all keeping up the great work. Go Hoobians. Yay, oh, Joseph. Yay, thank, thank you. you. Joseph's thank you. the best. Oh. I love that one. All right. Now we have several for the Time Warrior. So be prepared. Some people wanted to toe the line as grammar Nazis. So from David Everett, we got love the review, but laughed at the mispronunciation of, and I guess we had pronounced it Odin. I don't know, but it's Oneidin is what it should be pronounced as. And then chat grande 67 on blood axe talking about links, Eastern magic, I think not Easter. Yeah. (laughs) And he's right. I looked that up and it is definitely Eastern magic. And suddenly that makes a lot more sense. Wait, he wasn't throwing chocolate eggs at people. (laughs) You know what? Sometimes what I thought I heard as a kid just sticks with me. (laughs) Alal just always keeps some Easter magic in my heart at the very least though. We had a few reviews that were just really short and sweet so from mark dunston we got a good start to a new season the centauran was the best ever version i haven't seen all of it but i might be agreeing with you and then from raymond dixon the centaurans were never as good as the alien links was in this story not gonna lie i did like links some wanted to give their ratings so beardo beatnik said yay finally to the best companion of the 70s this one is a fun light romp and although there will be less and less of unit in benton sorry julie there is so much fun on the horizon i give it eight centaurin chips we also have kieran james evans say yeah the seven to eight range is probably right really good in many aspects just missing the polish kevin Lindsay makes quite an impression as links I much prefer the serious take on the Centaurans. I have views on comedy Strax. Cut out Pertwee in the title sequence is definitely on the naff, but I like it side of things. Fair. We then have Dave Sanderson. Ah, at last, my first Doctor Companion combo. A lovely opening for a new season. Funny, action-packed, and with a fantastic-looking monster. Two quick points. Is it time for Sarah Jane costume count? (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Mostly for Julie. Historical or pseudo-historical? For me, 8.5 polka beats out of 10. (laughs) And yes, it's enough of a historical. I don't need the big figures. I just like a period piece. That's all I need. Adam Wright says, I love the assertiveness of Sarah Jane Smith. You just knew this was a new era when she snuck on the TARDIS. I like that she meets the third Doctor when he is at the peak of his personality and knows his character. SJ would have been done with season eight Pertwee. I have to agree. She probably would have kicked his ass and left. (laughs) (laughs) And he also agrees that Rubish gave us a memorable guest star. Enough that it was a title. (laughs) And the intro to the legendary Centaurans is better than what we get for the Silurians. Amen. (laughs) That's all I have to say. Nicholas John Payne says, In ways, I would put this forward as the greatest story ever. Interesting take. The new opening title sequence, the recognition of a 10th anniversary, the naming of Gallifrey, 
in more heroic doctor alongside the greatest companion ever. True, there are iconic episodes such as An Unearthly Child and the climax of the war games, but the Centaurans were the last true classic monster and their war with the Rutan somehow contextualizes the laws of time. I never really thought about it that way. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Right? Then from Troy Hunter, we got such attachment to this story. The very first Who episode I ever saw. Lynx scared the hell out of me. Loved Sarah instantly. And it was this season that made me a fan. Odd coincidence, but Kevin Lindsay, who played Lynx, was actually from Bendigo, the same county town in Australia that I'm from. Hmm. Hope I pronounced everything correctly. And last but not least, Doctor Who's 60s, 70s, and 80s says, I can't believe you guys have hit season 11 already. Where has that gone? I love the Time Warrior. This VHS release was one of the first I bought back in the day, and I played it to death. The Time Warrior's blending of history and science fiction is basically the template for all historicals that come after. Eight long shank rascals out of ten. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say, again, I do like this blend of history and science. I don't need a true historical with legendary people. I don't need their Queen Victorias or anything like that. I just need it set in a different time period. And that's the mail. Thank you, Julie. And as a reminder to everyone, we love hearing all of your feedback, comments, and questions. And as you've heard, we do try to read out as many of them as possible. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D or via email at Watchers4D at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, so please do send us a note. All right, this episode, we're going to do things a little bit differently. It's been such a very long time since we started the show with some history. But this serial is so heavily based on some of the events going on in the UK at the time that it really is necessary to look at it through a bit of a historical lens. So with that, Riley is going to talk us through some of the history. Over to you, Riley. In the early 1970s, Britain was hit by high inflation, which eventually hit over 25%. This had predominantly been caused by oil prices rising worldwide, which was mostly related to an oil export embargo put in place by the OPEC countries related to the Arab-Israeli war and its aftermath. The rise in oil prices resulted in a rise in the cost of living, which resulted in demands for higher wages, which were often met due to the relative power of the unions in the UK at the time. Ultimately, this resulted in a wage inflationary spiral. In an attempt to control this, the British government put a cap on public sector pay and publicly promoted a cap on private wages too. Naturally, this caused a certain amount of unrest, as wages no longer kept pace with the rising cost of living. Now, while Britain wasn't particularly reliant on oil imports, the country did still heavily rely on coal to fuel the country. The wage caps extended to the coal mining industry, and the majority of coal miners worked for the National Coal Board and were also members of the National Union of Mine Workers. In mid-1973, the NUM elected a new vice president, Mick McGahee, who was known to be a radical. The National Conference passed resolutions calling for a 35% increase and for the election of a labor government committed to true socialist policies, including the nationalization of land and all key monopolies. As inflation rose, miners' wages were stagnant, which meant that technically miners were being paid less. In November 1973, the NUM rejected the pay offer from the coal board and held a national ballot on a strike. While the ballot failed, an overtime ban was implemented with the aim of halving production. As a result of this, the Conservative government, led by Prime Minister Ted Heath, implemented what was officially called the Three-Day Work Order, but is better known as the Three-Day Week, which came into force at midnight on December 31st, 1973. Commercial consumption of electricity was restricted to three consecutive days each week, with the objective being to ensure business continuity and survival, and to avoid further inflation and a potential currency crisis. Less than a month later, the NUM called another vote on strike action, and on the 24th of January 1974, 81% of NUM members voted to strike, rejecting the 16.5% pay rise that was on offer. The strike began on 5th of February. Two days later, Ted Heath called a general election while the three-day week was still in force. During the campaign, the Conservative Party emphasized the pay dispute with the miners and used the slogan, Who Governs Britain? with Heath believing that the general public sided with the Conservatives on the issues of strikes and union power. The election was held on the 28th of February 1974 and resulted in a hung parliament, and for those unfamiliar with the term, that's when no one party has a majority of the seats in the House of Commons, and so cannot form a majority government. In terms of the popular vote, Heath and the Conservatives had just over 200,000 more votes than the Labour Party, but Labour won more seats in the Commons. Heath entered into conversations with Liberal and Ulster Unionist MPs to form a coalition government, but failed to come to an agreement with either party. As a result, the Labour Party formed a minority government with former Prime Minister Harold Wilson being returned to that distinguished office. 
Under the new Wilson regime, miners' wages were immediately increased by 35%, bringing the miners' strike to an end, and the normal working week was restored on the 8th of March, 1974. So it's on this background that we have the monster of Peladon. And as an American, I have no idea what I just said. Back to you, Anthony. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Riley. And yeah, that's a lot of history, but it really is quite important to the background of this story. Now, looking behind the scenes here, Brian Hales had been invited to return to the show. As we've mentioned in the last few episodes, producer Barry Letts and script editor Terence Dix really wanted to exclusively use experienced writers on season 11 so that they could focus on their other show, the infamous Moonbase 3. Hales' prior story, The Curse of Peladon, had proven to be successful with both the production team and apparently the general public. And with that in mind, Hales was asked to write a sequel under the working title of Return to Peladon. Dix also asked him to include a feminist element within the story. We'll talk later about how successful that was. Hale's initial treatment was actually a direct sequel to Curse, taking place slightly later in King Peladon's reign. In this version, Ortron and Eckersley were working together to make Peladon an independent world that would profit from the Trisilica trade. Thalira was originally scripted as one of the king's advisors and had actually been due to marry him until Joe Grant showed up and he fell in love with her instead. What a pig. Additionally, Sarah's struggles to adjust to an alien planet for the first time would have led to a romantic subplot between her and Eckersley. Thank God that didn't survive. (laughs) By the time Hales formally received his commission to write the scripts, Letts and Dix felt that the plot was becoming too complex and they worked with Hales to streamline it. In the process, the setting was shifted forward 50 years, the Lyra became Peladon's heir rather than his advisor and former lover, and the story was retitled to The Monster of Peladon. But even after all of this, Dix was still unhappy with Hales' work. Given that he had already contributed two radically different versions of the story, and neither was working out, it was agreed that Hales would be paid in full for his work, and Dix would instead complete the story himself. This would turn out to be Hales' last contribution to the show, having written four prior serials, including The Celestial Toymaker and all of the other appearances of the Ice Warriors to date. Dix made further changes to the scripts, including a change to how the Ice Warriors were defeated, with Hales' original version having them be defeated when Alpha Centauri got word out to the Federation of what was going on, and the Federation would have then blockaded the Ice Warriors' planet and threatened to destroy it. Pretty radical. When it came to actually producing the story, Letts made a conscious effort to reassemble as much of the original cast and crew as possible. Lenny Main returned as director, Dudley Simpson as composer, and Gloria Clayton as designer. On screen, Stuart Fell and DeSan Churchman returned as both the body and voice of Alpha Centauri, respectively. Nick Hobbs returned as Agador, and Alan Bennion and Sonny Caldinez as the lead Ice Warriors. Maine and Clayton ensured that as many props, costumes, and sets as possible were reused from Curse. That being said, we do have a couple of names working behind the scenes who we didn't have on the first Peladon story. But a couple of them have worked on the show before. So, returning to the show as costumer... We have Barbara Kidd, who'd previously worked on Frontier in Space, The Green Death, and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And in the new role of production unit manager, we have George Galaccio, I think is probably how you pronounce his last name, whose role was fundamentally to handle the financial aspects of making the show. And he had been a production assistant on a couple of stories earlier in season 11. Now, all of the scripting issues led to delays in recording, which started a week later than it should have. So there was a compressed recording schedule here. Further troubling the production were John Pertwee's back issues that had become so bad that Terry Walsh had to fill in for him in almost any scene that required any level of physicality. This was particularly evident in the fight scene between the Doctor and Etis at the end of episode 4, where Walsh's face was obviously visible at times. To try and offset this, Maine had Pertwee overdub some lines in the rather vain hope of making it all slightly less obvious. The final version of the serial was broadcast between the 23rd of March and the 27th of April 1974, meaning that the real-life events that the serial was meant to be commenting on had been long resolved by the time of the broadcast of the final episode. And with that, it's time for our short summary, which is in the hands of Don this episode. Over to you, my friend. In the tradition of penultimate serials like The Smugglers and The Space Pirates comes the monster of Peladon. (laughs) Watch disinterestedly as the Doctor returns to Peladon 50 years later, only to find that minor changes have taken place. The king is now a queen, but still an ineffective ruler. The advisor is no longer an obvious traitor, just an obvious douchebag. The obvious traitor is still obvious, 
But now he's armed with a Scooby-Doo plot. You'll yawn as you wonder how long they can stretch this shit out. You'll stretch <laughs> as you wait for them to finally kill off the douchebag advisor and the angry idiot yokel stereotype whose every scene is a repeat of the one before it. But mostly, <laughs> you'll envy the doctor as he places himself in a sensory deprivation to avoid the soul-crushing tedium that is the real Monster of Peladon. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was brutal, Don, and I love it. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this. Part one. I want to preface one thing. As much as I'm going to say throughout this entire serial, I think there was a strong outline here that was poorly executed. And that's where I'm going <laughs> to start my my conversation. Yeah, and I think this also fell victim to the 1970s issue of we need to stretch out our money, so let's make this a six-parter even when it has no business of being a six-parter. Agreed. Anyway, sorry. Get started, Anthony. I just wanted to make that comment here at the beginning. <laughs> Very early on, we get an establishing shot of Peladon just to show us it's the same Peladon we've been to before, but there's badger hair this time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's something. They kind of look like they should be in Mongo Jerry. Oh, yes, yeah, they do. <laughs> the, the hair is just, not just for them, but for so many other characters, it's just randomly placed in different parts. And that's the question, the mining alien from Vega. Uh, I'm not making a joke here. I mean, I guess they're called vegans. <laughs> <laughs> He's like got patchy hair all over the place. And also, sorry to be jumping around, but I thought the design of him looked okay. And then when they did a somewhat up-close shot of him, the eye holes were completely uneven. He looked like he was just got goofy eyes. <laughs> they weren't even lined up. I, was, I, I just didn't know why they did it that way. There was a lot of questionable things with costuming, design. It was interesting. We'll just go there. <clears throat> so we get this establishing shot. We've got... A lot of things going on, just your very stereotypical, how do we set up a story? And we find out that there's a queen. Yas, yep. queen. I actually really like her. I like her in that she just plays disinterested the entire time. <laughs> and it's wonderful. Her facial expressions of just like, excuse me, or I don't want to be talking to you are great. I don't know. I think that she was played as kind of an airhead. She's very pretty, but she seems utterly useless, at least in the beginning. And she gets her moments later on. But at first, it seems like she's very clearly being played down. And it's even said later that she's basically Ortron's figurehead. And I just kind of wish they'd made her a little stronger from the get-go. Or at least had her develop more by the end. Yeah, that's fair, because I think they were trying to with the doctor being like, hey, Sarah Jane, talk to the queen. And I thought that that was really good. I do think they could have taken it further. But I think having her be in her head at the beginning, but having Sarah Jane come in and help her with things, I think they had the right idea. It just was not executed well. My main problem with the queen is that I find her entirely unbelievable because of the fact that that means that somehow, some way, the king of Peladon from before got laid. I just don't see how that was <laughs> he ever the best possible. pickup line in the universe. It is a tribute to Joe that she was able to resist that. <laughs> That's true. Maybe he found another Earth woman who he could use the same line on. <laughs> I guess so. Oy, oy, oy. I have some headcan that I put in here. Alpha Centauri is there. The doctor is planning this trip. I think the doctor expected Alpha Centauri to be there. And that's why the doctor wore green and hopes to match. <laughs> oh my God, matching besties. I know. Because he wasn't just wearing green. He was wearing green on green. Green on green on green. Yeah. Maybe. So did they rebuild all the sets from before? I, I can't imagine they left them around. They probably had bits and pieces in storage. Uh, okay. I think BBC storage at this time was pretty comprehensive. But speaking of Alpha Centauri, so there's one thing that got said in this that I wanted to take particular note of, and that's when Sarah is left with Alpha Centauri, and Alpha Centauri says that some people find their race frightening. Yeah. Really? <laughs> I mean, they I don't mean... just see a comedy penis? <laughs> no, you look great. <laughs> I guess... She probably is like, oh, hey, it's people frightened of me. And when people are just like, oh, my God, it's a giant penis. <laughs> <laughs> Alpha Centauri just doesn't understand is really what's happening here. I think 
one of my favorite parts in this is the doctor is showing Sarah Jane around and he starts name dropping mainly with I know the king blah 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 and then Sarah Jane calls him out on it she's just like really we're gonna name drop here come on doctor and I was like finally someone calls him out on it because Pertwee has been doing it for the past couple of seasons a little frustrating yeah you're not hanging out with Joe anymore doctor yeah <laughs> can't get away with this bullshit oh <sighs> All right, so we have some union action. You've got Gebek, who is leading the miners and demanding to speak to the queen. They've got some rather demanding and undermining radicals who go under the power of the leader. An undermining miner? Yeah, I I was going for a deliberate pun there. Uh, It feels rather ham-fisted to me. It's not particularly subtle as to what was going on at the time. And it's interesting because they're being played through all of this, we find out they're being played and the Doctor kind of avoids taking a side for most of it. And I would think if they were truly being oppressed, he would be all over that. It was really weird because usually the Doctor figures everything out before everyone else. And yet he had no idea that they were being played other than like after Sarah Jane says, oh, there's someone down here. And he's like, let's go figure that out. But he didn't even think that that was like the root of all the problems. He was just like, there's probably someone down there. But yeah, it was weird that he wasn't being like, yeah, nurse. He was just like, uh, let's just everyone get along. Yeah, that's hard. All the groups of characters here. You don't really like any of them. <laughs> no. no, I didn't. And that was one of my problems with the serial was I didn't like any of the groups, mainly because of Edis with the miners, because we've seen that type of character so many times before. And it's very played out. You've got Oratron, who is just so obnoxious. I could not wait for him to die. So (laughs) I was almost rooting for whoever the traitor was just to get rid of everybody (laughs) and level the field, which is terrible. But And I kind of liked Eckersley at the beginning because he just really didn't care. I love Eckersley. And I tell you what, even turning into the villain, I still liked him as just a character. I just thought that he was just very cool and suave in the first five episodes or so, but then as his plan started to unravel, then he got really frantic and then started acting like a moron. But until then, he was just cool as a cucumber. Yeah. I liked him up to a point because basically once he said that I'm going to rule Earth, I'm just like, what the hell are you talking about? I know, right? (laughs) At that point, I really just kind of questioned myself, like, what did I miss? How does that work out? We got forces of Galaxy 5 outside in the Federation. Where the hell does Earth figure into all this? It couldn't just be, I'm going to be insanely rich. They had to add the, I'm going to be the ruler of the Earth. It's like, oh, come on, dude. What are you, the master? Yeah. (laughs) One thing I will say about him, he's played by Donald G, who was also in the Space Pirates. So this is the second Doctor that he's killed off with boredom. (laughs) Wow. Another thing that I found interesting is that with Galaxy 5, so did Galaxy 5 and Galaxy 4 like, ever meet each other? And would all the women from Galaxy 4 just like hate Ecclesley? They did. They had a really nasty breakup, so they don't talk anymore. So okay. you just, you know, yeah. I was kind of hoping it'd be like Mean Girls, that there's an all-women <laughs> Galaxy 4 and an all-women Galaxy 5, and they just absolutely despise each other. So which ones wear pink on Wednesdays? <laughs> That's a good question. It's Galaxy 5. All the men. Galaxy 5. Yeah. Let's try to stop making Trisilicate happen. It's never going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, man. One thing that I did like is that the music was used sparingly. It was used pretty much appropriately, and it wasn't overly synthesized. Yeah, I even had a note somewhere saying some woodwind, some percussion, tiny bit of synth. Julie's going to love this. <laughs> There was actually one segment of music that I thought was so nice and perfect for the mood that I made a note of it. I can't remember the last time I did that. (laughs) Let's talk about how this ends, because the Doctor saves the miners as they're about to be executed. Ortron wants to have him executed in their place because he's too obvious as a bad guy to actually be a bad guy. And the Doctor asks to investigate Agador's appearances. Gets down into the mines. The Queen's Champion, who is another giant guy who is also mute, just like the one from the Curse of Peladon, because, you know, gotta do it. And then the Spirit of Agador shows up, kills Bloor, and then we have our cliffhanger. Woo! They're just hitting on so many of the same kind of beats as the previous Peladon story. It's almost a remix. Yeah, and it's just not doing anything original. And I know we give Terry Nation a free pass for this, 
I've been thinking about this a lot. With the Terry Nation scripts, at least in execution, it's fun. You've seen it all in various guises many, many times now, but it's enjoyable. I was actually looking forward to this serial, and I'm just seeing them do the same things, and many times they're doing them in almost the same way, and it's just, it never really grabbed my interest. And as, as snarky as I was during the short description, I would like to know why. I would like to be able to dissect this and figure out why didn't this work? The music's fine. It's shot well. I think it just comes down to the script. That kind of makes sense given, you know, Hales tried to write it at least twice before Terrence Dix came in and said, this just isn't working. Let me do it. So it, it was kind of a rush job done by two different people and from the sounds of it, just not done well. Yeah, I think that the skeleton, the outline, whatever you want to call it, I think that's sound. You've got miners being mistreated. You've got an underlying plot coming in from an outside source. It has a lot of good points where it's like, this would be a great story. It should be a great story. But somehow the execution was just poor. And it's just all the filling points in between what's in that outline just aren't fun. It's just boring. It's like, oh, hey, I'm just getting read a story in the most boring of ways. I think it all comes back to the fact that, and I agree with you, Julie, I really do think that on paper, the general concept here is workable and has some interesting things. I think the problem is that there's zero heart. What I mean by that is that there's the characters, like Don said, are repeat characters, repeat stock characters. There's nobody that you like. There's nobody that's interesting other than Eckersley. And so if you can reimagine this with a queen that let's say maybe she's the exact opposite of her father, she's too headstrong or too domineering, or you have a well-to-do lord that serves her, and instead of trying to undermine her and control her, he actually has good ideas, but he doesn't say them because he's afraid of getting punished. I mean, something just to change it up. Like was said before, it's just we've seen that before, and without that heart of characters that you can buy into while the plot moves along, you get distance from it. And then it's not helped, and I'm sure we'll get into it as we get through it, but Etis just being psychotically <sighs> difficult and doing the same shit time and time again just yeah. doesn't help. Like, your methods aren't working, dude. Yeah. Maybe it's time to change your methods. Gevik says something, you know, sane and reasonable. And then Edis will immediately try to, yes, undermine him. I'm so glad you put that up because I counted in the second episode. <laughs> he walks away, doesn't even wait a full two second count. And before he goes, I say we attack again. And I died laughing when that happened. <laughs> like this is a six episode serial. You couldn't have him wait like five more seconds before you do this. But then you have the, the other miners. The other miners will go along to anyone that makes a speech in front of them, <laughs> even if it is the exact opposite of what they were just about to do. Whatever is the last speech is the speech. Yes. <laughs> I get that this guy is meant to be a parody of how Terence Dix, who was notoriously conservative, saw Mick McGahey, but... Jesus Christ, really? Does he have to be that unhinged and that difficult of a character? All right, episode two or part two. There's now a rock slide caused by Edis. Which Gebek is very unhappy. He's trapped the doctor and Gebek is like, oh yeah, our one friend among the aliens and you've trapped him in a cave. You idiot. <laughs> but I do like the special effect they use for the drill, that pinching effect, which they then also use for the Ice Warriors weapons. I thought yeah. that was nice. Yeah. That was one thing that made me really happy, because if you remember when we did Curse, I complained that they gave the Ice Warriors guns a different effect to what it was in the Troughton era. This is the return of the Troughton era effect. It's good. Made it me really very happy. Works. And it was also in this episode, to reference Don's summary, this is a story about someone using a ghost of a cultural legend to <laughs> stop someone from using their own property. Yes, this is straight up Scooby-Doo, without a doubt. This might be a bit of a tangent, but I'll be quick. I do not understand the religious beliefs of this place. <laughs> <laughs> I can get if you've got a mythical beast that eventually becomes a deity. When that beast lives in your basement. <laughs> and you feed it prisoners. You don't yes. even like treat it well with high food. You literally just throw it the people you don't want. Yeah, I don't understand this planet. <laughs> it just makes no sense to me. 
Well, you know, let's not judge other cultures. Dad. <laughs> I just want to learn. That's all. <laughs> so I don't know how much we're going to get out of this episode. I like the psychedelic auto-defense system for the refinery. That was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. There was a scene where the miners were basically like, so what's the Federation ever done for us? <laughs> Half expecting someone to go, well, you know, the... Warplanes. The aqueducts, the roads. <laughs> yeah. The interplanetary water system. Sadly, it didn't go in that direction, and I was sorely disappointed. Can we take a moment, because I forgot to mention it in the first episode, about what jerks the guards are? Oh, oh yeah, they uh, suck. Mainly when they push Sarah Jane for no reason. Yep. I wanted to have somebody to root for here. That was completely uncalled for. I'm sorry to say I'm going through all my notes, and I'm like, all I do is hit plot points. I have no commentary on episode two. <laughs> Yeah, it's all very routine. Militant miners, Sarah taken hostage, getting left behind, Ortron manipulating the Queen. There's very little here because everything to analyze is just such an obvious parallel to the history. And that's what kills me. There's no subtlety here. I'm just going to go ahead. We get to the end of this episode and Agador is there. My first thought was, wasn't Agador able to be tamed? And then we immediately uh -huh. get to our resolution in episode three. <laughs> With the lullaby. I mean, you can't expect them to write an entirely new script. Come on. And Pertwee was probably delighted to sing that lullaby again. I know that in his big Doctor Who interview, he talked about how much he loved it the first time around. I know Aww. I was looking forward to it. It was lovely. <laughs> this was actually the scene that made me really hate Ortron mm -hmm. because he's allegedly a religious advisor. If your god gives the okay to the stranger... That's when you stop trying to undermine them and have them killed. Yep. Yes. And they either could have had him do that or just basically show him for the hypocrite that he is in better ways. Instead, it changes nothing about his character. Very frustrating. Yeah, I got the queen more on their side, but not him. There's one thing here that I really liked, and there was an absolute gorgeous shot of the queen, Ortron, and Alpha Centauri looking down into the pit, and it's shot from up from the pit. Mm -hmm. That worked really well as a shot. That was some good direction. Yeah. It did look really good. I think we need to talk about the most important scene and the most look forward to scene in the entire serial, and that is back in the throne room. That's right, Julie. We can finally talk about chairs. <laughs> and they bring a chair out for the queen when they have their little snack with the doctor and Sarah Jane. That looks like the most uncomfortable chair that I have ever seen. But they're drinking out of horns, and that makes it okay. And does anyone have an idea of what Sarah Jane was eating? It was just like a green circle. Some kind of moss? I guess. I just hope it didn't fall off of Alpha Centauri or anything. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, now it's even worse. Speaking of the throne room, let's talk about the women's lib scene. Oh, yeah. It could have been so much more. It was so ham-fisted in terms oh. of the dialogue. But I'm only a girl. Your Majesty, there's nothing only about being a girl. It's like... Who writes this shit? Clearly not a woman. It's one of those things where it could have been so much more, but not as like ham-fisted. And there's a yeah. way to do that. It's not that hard. Because again, it should have been more about Sarah Jane not just saying like, you can do whatever you want. It's like, here's how you do that. And actually give her action. Just anything else that wasn't just like, just be better. Okay. It really felt like something from grade school where you're getting an assignment for a paper and the teacher says, and remember, you have to at least make one mention of blah, 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 blah in your paper. That's what it feels like in the script. That's Dicks and Let's saying we want there to be an element of feminism. Here is your element <sighs> of feminism. Let's move on. God. One tiny atom. There you go. That said, she does become more assertive after it. You know, yeah. after Ortron actively starts getting in the doctor's way and is just too obvious to be an actual villain. She chews him out about it. She is very clearly running out of patience with him and is no longer afraid to say it. And I kind of like that they actually followed through after the women's lip speech. I really wanted her to wind up just turning the guards on Ortron. <laughs> Not because he was a traitor, but be just because of the way he was. <laughs> I think if we think back to Curse, with Hepesh as the traitor, I think Ortron is almost too obvious to be the traitor. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're ripping a lot of stuff off, but they've just like, well, let's just take this and let's flip it. Like when the Ice Warriors show up, now they're the bad guys. It's just like, okay. And I have my issues with that. Yeah. What I liked about it is that I didn't see it coming. I actually didn't. Like I, I was sitting there and I'm watching it and I'm like, do, 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 do. 
The Ice Warrior was in the refinery? What? It's more the fact that we saw... So Curse of Peladon was very much an analogy for the European Union or the European economic community. And the Ice Warriors are clearly kind of meant to be Germany, right? They used to be the bad guys. Now they're good guys. And then here they're bad guys again. So what confidence does that have for the future of Europe? It's just... It's awkward. I don't necessarily say that it was good in the sense of like a world building type of thing. I'm just saying that I didn't see it coming. So that part was a good bit of writing. That's fair. Yeah. And to get to them in the refinery, the doctor uses the sonic screwdriver as a screwdriver. Woohoo! <laughs> Yay. Also, oh, in the second episode, I actually did say, is Eckersley up to something? Question mark. So I, I kind of saw it coming. And when he starts pushing Alpha Centauri to request Federation troops, mm -hmm. that's when you start thinking, okay, why is this guy trying to escalate things here? He's up to something, maybe. And not just that, but he and Alpha Centauri are practically trying to gaslight Sarah Jane like, it couldn't be anybody in the refinery. I saw someone like, no, you didn't. No, yeah, they keep telling her that it's impossible and they hammer on her so hard that at one point I was thinking, is Alpha Centauri in on this too? That would have been a great twist. Oh, that would have been even better. <laughs> that would have been the thing no one expected. <laughs> it was me all along. <laughs> That's so funny is that when we have the end of part three, <laughs> when Alpha Centauri comes into the throne room to announce that the Federation has been called in, it's supposed to sound so ominous, but it's done with that voice. Yeah. It was such a wonderful contrast. I was waiting for Alpha Centauri to say something like, and yes, the Emperor's own troops, the dreaded Soda Car, will be coming into now to take over the planet. <laughs> I actually think this could have been good if it had been played up for laughs. Maybe. There are some good comedy beats here. The pettiness of the guard who's guarding the doctor was oh, really yeah. funny. When the doctor tries to trick him, he throws away the glass of water, but then comes back, pours a glass of water, and doctor's like, oh, so now you're going to give me the water? And the guard just drinks it. So good. Those small comedy beats, if they'd expanded that and made this a bit of a farce, this could have worked. Or would have taken the place of the lack of interesting characters. Yeah. yeah. That would have really helped. If you were going to be playing the same characters as before, you might as well make a mockery of them and have this be a lot of fun. All right, so we've got the miners coming in and targeting Sonic Lance at the Citadel because they're absolute bellends. <laughs> we've got Ice Warriors coming in. We've got a full Curse of Peladon reunion happening. Let's go to part four with Azaxia saying, Greetings, Ambassador. This planet is now under martial law. Should have been Martian law. Yeah. <laughs> Should have been Martian law. Much better. Also, I feel like they didn't play up the raspiness of his voice enough. I understand you way too well. This would have been eight episodes if he talked in the normal Ice Warrior voice. <laughs> this loses a point from Julie because she did not have to turn on subtitles. <laughs> I did, and there's a great part to it. I'll come to it when I get there. Well, it's good to know they still got the Lego hands. But Ooh, Lego hands. I don't know if you guys noticed this in that throne room scene. What the hell is going on with that one Ice Warrior in the back? It looks like his costume got left out in the rain and it swelled. <laughs> <laughs> and he kept that way the entire time. Riley, he gained some weight. Don't be rude. Don't be in mean. In the head? In the head? <laughs> I noticed the one with the giant head as well. <laughs> okay, fine. You don't uh, know. You don't know what kind of like... That's right. Maybe they gained their weight in the head. They obviously can't gain it anymore in their ass. That's for I've sure. I've been stress eating a lot lately. <laughs> they are all still incredibly thick. Oh, yes. And one of them, when he talks, his lips don't move. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that one too. <laughs> These costumes that have probably been around since 1968 and it's now 1974, they're not doing too well. No. It's also at this point where I realized that Peladon should have never joined the Federation. Yeah. I mean, we said that last time. <laughs> but more emphasis on it. Oh, well, yeah. The Federation now is like, hey, we're here. We're going to go straight to mass executions. That's plan one. <laughs> First thing on the list, straight out the gate. Azixir comes in and threatens to destroy the entire planet. What a wanker. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Ortron is like, oh, now that I'm on the side of the miners, like, what? Well, it's a bigger threat. Anyone that gives a speech, the miners will believe. <laughs> so I'm like, you know this guy. He's the source of your real problems anyway, and that's how you act? Come on. 
He's like, only I can subjugate my own people, not right. you. One thing I found interesting is how they were able to control the temperature in the mines. Yes. Yeah. Installed air conditioning down there. Isn't that nice? <laughs> That's not so bad working conditions now, is it? Well, I found it interesting because right before they joined the Federation, they were barbarians with little technology. And now all of a sudden they've got heated and cooling mines. Well, that's what the Federation brought. They're prioritizing here. AC in the mines. I mean, come on. And yet we're going to treat the miners like shit. But at least they're in the AC for it. Speaking of miners, one of the ones who shows up in this episode is played by Roy Evans, who was Bert the Miner in The Green Death. Oh. (laughs) I was so happy to see him again. He clearly survived his turning green and moved to Peladon. (laughs) Carried on mining. What a guy. Are they supposed to be the same species as the nobles? Yeah, I think it's just meant to kind of be a class difference. So their hair is how it naturally grows, whereas the nobles have hair treatments. And Th- that's stuff how to... their hair now. Na- uh, uh... I don't know. The nobles have less stripes, and the miners have many stripes. Yeah. But they all look like Tigra from Thundercats. It's definitely meant to be a class thing, right? Because you think about mining. In real life, it tends to be a lot more blue collar. And in Britain at the time, we had a conservative government who were known for being extremely upper class. So it's very much a commentary on that. I assume they're meant to be the same species, just look Not different sure because of money. <laughs> anyway, we did get a fun little shot from the perspective of the Ice Warrior mm-hmm. as he was being attacked. Mm-hmm. That was fun. I also enjoy, I think this is either the first or second occasion where we have a organized attack by the miners only for them to get brutally slaughtered and then run away (laughs) yep (laughs) and then i love the fact that that secret passageway it's not a secret everybody knows it (laughs) everyone uses it every single group in this planet uses it they might as well just break it down and just put like a revolving door there Uh, at this point speaking of the miners so etis still wants to blow up the citadel because he's a radical, and as we all know, communism equals bad, because Terence Dix is a raging conservative, or was a raging conservative, I should say. And then when the doctor finally corners him, he has such a look of madness in his eyes. And that's when we keep Terry Walsh in work for another week. (laughs) I just can't believe how much of Terry Walsh's face was visible in that fight. Come on. Come on, Lenny, you're better than this. I don't notice those type of things all that much. And then by the time I read your little thing that you send out every time, I couldn't be bothered to go back and check. (laughs) Well, in case you missed it, it's there again in the reprise at the beginning of part five. Yeah, the recaps were, as per usual, a bit long. Yes, yes, they were. Certainly for parts five and six, yeah. Start a new episode, all right? Um, let the credits play, go over there, make some tea, <laughs> come back. Oh, okay, now we got some new footage. Here we go. Yeah, I mean, otherwise you get to watch Etis winning the fight, firing the sonic lance and blowing himself up again because Azixir has rigged it with a self-destruct mechanism. You know what I also noticed about the sonic lance is that it had two giant balls on it. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. It's clearly from the same tech as the Doctor's gadget from the Time Monster. Uh-huh. <laughs> Absolutely. Are we on to part five? I think we so. Are. Okay. We are. And part five starts off with, I think, the best lines I have ever heard. Eckersley explained to Sarah Jane about trying to put a book in on the Doctor's death. He never should have involved himself with local politics. <laughs> <laughs> Let that be a lesson to everybody. Do not go to a PTA meeting. This is what could happen to you. Preach, Riley. (laughs) On the bright side, Sarah gets to think that the Doctor is dead, and then she gets to think that he's dead again in part six. So this is clearly starting to be a dry run for the next story. But we do kill off the problem child, and the Doctor's still alive. I like when the Doctor meets up with Gebek, and they have that nice little conversation. I really enjoyed that little tiny conversation that they have. Well, this is a perfect example of they should have built that character out more and removed Edis completely. That would have had a little bit more complexity, added a character that actually you enjoyed seeing, that at least gave like a sense of warmth and kindness and hope instead of just madness. And also that it wasn't like a fight for screen time. If you had removed Edis completely and he just had Gebek, then you could sympathize more with the miners because you only have him to deal with. Or at the very least, make Edis a bit more than a one-note character. But as Anthony said, we can't make the miners look too sympathetic. Come on, 
Federation money is going to trickle down to them anytime. What are they complaining about? You know, what's interesting, too, though, is what exactly was their grievance? They were being killed by the spirit of Agador. Was that it? It was entirely engineered by the Ice Warriors and Eckersley. Yeah, it was dangerous to be in the mines because they were getting killed off. Okay. Um, And they blamed the nobles on that? Yeah, because you're forcing us to do this, Agador is unhappy with us. We've violated the Holy Mountain. Once again, he's in the basement. (laughs) Yes. Go ask him! (laughs) Holy Mountain was mentioned several times, so these guys are clearly fans of Alejandro Hodorowsky. (laughs) But yeah, it was flimsy. Again, it's entirely to make it look like what the miners in real life were complaining about was screwing everything up for everyone else and now we don't have any power because of these bastards that's what it is so that was poorly done you know what else was poorly done this escape plan thank you yes i was just about to bring that up (laughs) it was poorly planned and then poorly executed it's not really much of a plan (laughs) at all it's just more of like a shout and then run in random directions kind of thing oh my gosh it was so bad But no, what was even worse was, and this also got my biggest laugh of the entire serial, the escape plan doesn't work. I called him Lord Ultron the entire time. (laughs) Lord Ultron (laughs) dies. This gives a opportunity for us to have a solemn moment for the queen to show her concern and show that she's not cold hearted. And so when she goes down to cradle his dead body, the shot rises up and overshadowing literally half the screen, a Big ol' ice word butt cheek right there, <laughs> blocking half the shot. I was like, that's how you frame this? Are you Hashtag kidding thick. me? Oh my god. <laughs> like, it completely ruined any sort of moment of, like, emotional depth. Literally 50% of the screen is ass. Hashtag thicker than grief. <laughs> and we have the Eckersley reveal here in episode five. By which time, we've already figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. I also, like, the pairing of Sarah Jane and Alpha Centauri was awesome. That's probably (laughs) one of my favorite things out of all of this, of just Sarah Jane being like, oh my god, this thing. And then Alpha Centauri being like, oh, la 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 la. Oh my gosh, it was so wonderful. I think Sarah is just fantastic all through this. I enjoyed the Curse of Peladon, but I kind of wonder if it might have been better if it had been with Sarah and not this second-class remake. So I have to say about Alpha Centauri, and this may sound like sacrilege, but I feel like a little bit of Alpha Centauri goes a long way. (laughs) And after a while, it was getting to a point where it was just really getting to me. And then I started like hearing things like Alpha Centauri sounds like Ralph Wiggum at times. It was getting really (laughs) weird. You just don't like dick. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Julie. Uh, you can cut it if you want. I don't care. No, I'm not. No, we're going to keep that. <laughs> anyway, but what I find really frustrating about Alpha Centauri isn't about length of screen time or anything like that. Or even girth of screen time. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fact that Alpha Centauri has no backbone. No. Sarah Jane runs off and then immediately Eckersley is like, where's Sarah Jane? And then... Alpha almost immediately breaks. Could you not just say nothing? And not just that, but like he's just willingly giving out the information of like, oh, this is what the Ice Warriors are doing. That's just how it is. And I'm just going to be their messenger. I don't really feel bad about this at all. It's just like, oh, that's there you go. It's like Alpha Centauri, the messenger of fascism. (laughs) It's problematic. Okay, we end with the Doctor and Gebek in the refinery and the Ice Warriors start cutting in. We find out that Eckersley is only really interested in money and power, as we already mentioned. And we end with a cut of the hole in the door just getting bigger. And that's our cliffhanger. Is that where Star Wars got it from? (laughs) Probably. So part six with another long reprise. Uh, Yes. I like the fact that we get a little bit further in and Sarah Jane has her fingers crossed and you can see her fingers crossed. That was kind of fun. Can we talk about the Doctor just casually killing Ice Warriors with the Agador statue? Oh, yeah. That's um, brutal. You know, not really what you expect of the Doctor. I don't know. Just that didn't sit right with me. It's so weird because sometimes the Doctor kills people, sometimes he doesn't. And it's there doesn't seem to be a good rhyme or reason to it on occasion. 
I don't know. It doesn't quite work for me. We get to a point now where we know who Eckersley is. The Doctor has control of the Agador statue slash transport mechanism. And now Eckersley is going to try to put the kibosh on him by doing the alert system on him to try to completely disable him. And if he holds off long enough, it'll destroy his mind. And you know what the best part is, is when I was watching this and I had my closed caption on and it said, beeping intensifies. (laughs) (laughs) And it did. It was a nice effect, but the beeping got really annoying. Also, Rumble was concerned. (laughs) I had a feeling he might be. (laughs) Rumble's always concerned. With all the beeps and boops and all that, yes, it wasn't as bad as the Silorians. That really got to him. Oh, there's no kazoo this time. But we get a gurn there. We get a gurn. We do. I noticed the gurn. I was very excited about the gurn. Mm-hmm. So we get the gurn. And then the doctor supposedly dies. Yeah, except as Don mentioned, he just puts himself in sensory deprivation so he doesn't have to pay attention to the rest of the story. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> yeah. Really was. I am not going to lie. When Eckersley and Sarah Jane are in the communications room, first off, she made a stupid decision on getting too close to him with the gun. Yeah. She's still a bit naive. Then I really thought that he was aiming to actually shoot her in the back and that someone Mm -hmm. was going to like come in and do something about it. But no, he just locked her in. He's just a slippery bastard. I mean, he hides and then guns down miners from the shadows. That's why I was surprised he didn't just outright kill Sarah Jane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Eckersley didn't go from, I'm cool and control. My plan is still going forward. Plan unravels. And instead of him disintegrating into kind of a frantic, nervous mess, which I thought would have been more interesting, he disintegrates into more of like a classic mustached twirling villain and kidnaps the queen. Yeah. I did not like that. And that plot element really felt like that was tacked on. I feel like we could have ended 15 minutes earlier and just had him give us the Scooby-Doo ending. The Federation, the real Federation shows up and he's arrested and sent off. Or even he escapes. That would have been good too, yeah. I would have liked it if he had just kept his cool the entire time. Because that's what I liked about him. But once he, like you said, becomes a mustache twirling villain, he's no longer interesting. So we got all the ice warriors because the miners came in. But then they left the queen by herself. So miners, you're dumb. I do want to give a (laughs) shout out to the guard who stabbed Azixir in the stomach. Yeah. That was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. That was pretty cool. And then we get this whole chase scene and they get Agador to sniff him out. Yay, puppy. And now I'm going to talk about my least favorite part of this is that Agador dies. That's really sad. That is unnecessary, I felt. And frankly, using someone's god as a search dog is a little (laughs) sacrilegious. But also what happens to the religion now that he's gone? Well, you know, that was the son. You know, the father of Agador is still up in heaven and the Holy Spirit will come and (laughs) grace them. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, geez. He had to die to absolve everyone's sins. I hope you're not hinting that there's a trinity, as in there will be a trinity of Peladon cereals now. (laughs) Big Finish has made another Peladon story, possibly several. Was the Big Finish called the Son of Peladon or the Son of Agador? No. No? Well, gang, I guess the real monster of Peladon was Eckersley all along. Zoinkies. (laughs) The real monster of Peladon was the friends we made along the way. (laughs) So we get to our little ending, right? Yep. Galaxy 5 has ended the war because they weren't going to get any Trisilicate because their people were busted killed and then you have the queen asking for the doctor to stay i love how he's like nah pick get back see i hate that in order for the queen to have any kind of arc she needs to thank the doctor and then ask gebek herself i agree with that yeah but they've made her learn nothing and this was written by people who have a queen and have had a queen at this point for 20 odd years <sighs> it's not good but you know it is good is when the Doctor and Sarah Jane are going back to the TARDIS and Sarah Jane's like, are you sure? Are you sure you don't want to stay? Are you sure? I don't want to stand in the way of your career. (laughs) Uh, I thought that was adorable. And I love how he was just like, in you go. (laughs) 
That nice little comedy beat ending. I really do wish this whole thing had been done as a farce. But before we get into scoring, I wanted to ask, last time we gave the Curse of Peladron five points on the camp count purely for Alpha Centauri, I feel like we need to be consistent here and give this one a five for exactly the same reason. I would say you get more Centauri, so maybe 7.5? More screen time? Yeah, more screen time. 7.5. All right. I accidentally just typed 998, which has really (laughs) skewed my spreadsheet. Ruin the entire metric system. (laughs) Let's go ahead and score this one. And you're going to hate me for this because you always do. But Julie, we're starting with you this time. This is a really difficult one because as I said at the very beginning, I think that this had an outline that could have worked really, really well. Unfortunately, they didn't do a very good job of building out that outline. And so a lot of it was boring. Good parts being the whole concept of the minor strike I actually like. And having this outside source actually being the real villain, I thought was great. I like the music in it. I thought that was well done. And those few comedy beats that we did get, I rather enjoyed. And Sarah Jane was excellent throughout this whole thing. However, there's a lot of padding, a lot of boring elements. There's a lot of things you could just tell were not well written, probably due to the fact that we went back and forth between writers. And it was a struggle to get through. It was boring. So this one's a difficult one for me to actually rate, but it was probably one of the worst that I've seen in recent years. So I'm going to say 4.5 disinterested queens out of 10. Wow. All right, Riley, you're up next. Return to Peladon? More like Pella don't. <laughs> <laughs> All stupid jokes aside, just like I said about Alpha Centauri, a little bit of Peladon goes a long way. And while I like the show trying to flush out its narrative universe, <sighs> Peladon didn't interest me this go round at all. Perhaps it was because we were faced once again with a ruler who was unsure of themselves and an advisor who was overbearing. I did like the Scooby-Doo mystery. And I like the intergalactic espionage angle. The sets were fun. The makeup was interesting. And the Ice Warriors, I think, look better than they ever have. And that includes their big old buns. (laughs) I don't think this is as bad as everyone else is thinking. I think it's below average who that didn't teeter too much toward being boring necessarily, just uninventive. So I give it six. Please don't get your Agadors spayed and neutered because they are now probably extinct out of ten. (laughs) <laughs> all right Don, you're up oh i think everyone knows what i think about this story at this point this is a terrible script with some really frankly insulting politics in it that's fairly well executed for what they have it's competently directed the score is good but i hate it <laughs> i i felt just kind of insulted in the way that they just said hey let's just take our old script let's flip a few things and then stretch it out like a piece of taffy i'm giving it two and a half redheaded quilfs out of ten Whoa. 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 shots <laughs> fired i think i agree with don more than the other two overall this is padded they should have been more inventive with the script but Brian Hales didn't deliver. Terence had to take breaks in between working on Moonbase 3 to finish the script because that show is clearly more important. And it just doesn't work. Something different needed to be done with this rather than a retread. The characters needed to be changed. Maybe even the tone. I mentioned I would have loved to have seen this as a straight up comedy. And as a result, it just didn't really work. I see what they were trying to do. And I do want to give some props to the direction and to the music, which were for the most part pretty good. But Plot-wise, script-wise, it just fell incredibly, incredibly flat. And I think I can safely say that this is a story that I watched. (laughs) So, Whoa, whoa. Let's back off from the controversial opinions here, Anthony. Yeah. So I'm going to give this one three psychedelic defense systems out of ten, which gives us a story average of four, marking it as our new lowest average rating of the Pertwee era, and the lowest since the Space Pirates. All right, with that, we have reached the end of the episode. We will be back next time as we reach the end of an era with Planet of the Spiders. But in the meantime, as always, thank you so much for listening, and have a good one.
You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Peladon, more like Peladon't, was recorded on Tuesday the 14th of June 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if your god lives in your basement, you can always ask them what they do and don't approve of. Just an idea.